in God's word in the book of John, in chapter 4, verse 27 to 54. If you've got a church Bible, it starts on page 863, or it will be up on the screen behind me. Last week we read how Jesus showed culturally shocking love to the Samaritan woman at the well. And we're going to continue from when his disciples joined him. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. When they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realised that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Thanks, Jenny. Uh, let's pray and then we'll get into this passage. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the journey that we've been on together uh, in the book of John. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, this morning as we come to this passage that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, that you would comfort us, and that you would change us, Lord, that uh, we may be different people than the ones who walked in this morning. 
Lord, we pray that you would fuel us for what you're doing in this world, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this week, uh, I came across a thread on the website Reddit. So if you don't know what Reddit is, uh, it's basically the internet's biggest forum, and people jump on and pretty much talk about everything and anything they want to, and I came across uh, a thread that asked the question, uh, if you could ask God one question, what would you ask? If you could ask God one question, what would you ask? Now, I don't know if you've thought about that before, right? Maybe, maybe you have something that you go, you know what, I do actually have a question that I would ask God. Uh, for me, I think it's actually quite tricky to know exactly one question, get the answer for it, what would I ask? And so I was grateful that uh, on this website there were a few uh, good options. So there are some funny ones. Someone asked the question, uh, why isn't there an effective diet pill? Why isn't there an effective safeguard pill that we can eat whatever we want to eat and stay the weight that we want to eat? Right now, that's a question we can, uh, sorry, the weight that we want to stay. That's a question we can get behind, right, and ask God that question. There was another one that someone asked, uh, why do avocados have such large pips? Right? Now, that's something I've always wanted to know, right? I mean, I like avocados, don't get me wrong. I'm Gen Y, so it's a part of the package. But for me, it just never made sense, the flesh-to-pip ratio. So yeah, I think that's a good question. Uh, there were funny ones, there were good ones, there were bad ones, there were ones where people asked from hurt, could tell they were hurting as they asked. But then as I was going along, uh, all of a sudden this question kind of stopped me. Right? It, it made me stop scrolling and actually think. And I don't know if it's a question that you've asked before or thought about, but it was this question. This is the question, what does God want for me? What does God desire for me? Now, that made me stop, right, and, and actually think, what does God actually desire for me? And I also realized in that moment that if you have one question, don't waste it on the pimp thing. Right? Go somewhere deeper, because a question like this, what does God want for me, what does God want for us, is something that we want to know. Right? Something that we would all be kind of interested in, that would benefit us to actually get at the heart, okay, what does God, the God of the universe, what is his desire for us? And so what I thought this morning is, instead of kind of looking at the answers from Reddit, which you might know isn't that helpful ever, uh, that we'd actually come to the Bible, to God's word, and ask this question of God. To, to pose this to God, hey, hey God, what do you want for me? What's your desire for me? What's your will for me? What do you want for me? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage uh, here in John to find the answer to that. But before we do, uh, Jenny was helpful in giving us some context. It's worth recognizing that we actually picked this story halfway up. Okay, so we saw last week, if you were here with us, uh, if you weren't, uh, the story is this. Jesus goes to a place called Samaria, which culturally... You wouldn't go there. As a Jew, they hated the Samaritans. They hated the people there. Uh, you wouldn't associate with them. You wouldn't go there. In fact, uh, Ross also pointed out to us that if you wanted to pay someone out, you would call them a Samaritan. Right? That was kind of the picture of these people. Then you get this woman. So Jesus goes to Samaria and he meets this woman. Now, again, culturally, women weren't really valued back then. Uh, they weren't held up in society. They were pushed down in society. In fact, I actually read uh, one thing this week that said for some Jewish leaders, so not all, but for some Jewish leaders, they actually said that to talk to women as special, even your own wife, was a waste of time and distracted you from study, which meant it was a great evil that could send you to hell. Right? For some Jewish leaders. Hard to imagine they got wives, 
but that's what their kind of picture was, right? This is how kind of generally women were treated. Jesus enters that space for the Samaria and the Samaritan people and women. He enters into it. He breaks through those barriers. He breaks through racism and sexism. He loves this woman, and he speaks to her kindly and gently, and we saw that last week. Now, where we enter this week is in that kind of space. Jesus is still talking to the woman. Now, we saw in that first verse, lucky if we have that up, the first verse, the disciples come back, and they're like, still talking to the woman. But as we saw, they don't say anything. They don't ask any questions. And then we pick it up from verse 28. Leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So the question we ask at the start, what does God want for me? What is God's desire for you? What we're going to see in this passage is that God speaks into that space and shows us that his desire for us is that we would see Jesus and believe in Jesus and know his love, right? That's God's desire for us. And we see this beginning here in really this strange account of this food situation, right? So the woman sees all this stuff about Jesus, goes to town, tells everyone about it, and then the disciples come back. And they come back with food, right? Now, if we remember in chapter 4, verse 8, the disciples went to go and get food. Okay, so they're back from their journey into town to get food. And here they are with the food, with Jesus, basically saying, hey, we've got dinner. Now, you would think if you were Jesus, after a day of not eating, if someone brings you food, you'd be excited by that. Right? Like, I know if, uh, if ever I get to kind of even 11 o'clock, really, and I haven't eaten, if someone offers me food, I'm overwhelmed by that. I'm excited by it. You'd think that's what Jesus would be feeling. But, but he's not, right? He actually says and replies to them the modern equivalent again of thanks, but no thanks, I've actually already eaten, right? Now, now what does it feel like as we read that? Because for me, as I read it, it kind of feels like Jesus just looks at the disciples' food and goes, oh, man, fish and loaves again? Actually, I'm all good, you know, I had something you didn't know about, I've already eaten. That's kind of what it feels like for me, right? Because we've all been there in that situation where someone offers us food and we look at it and politely decline, actually I've already eaten. Uh, for us, uh, it, was, uh, it happened kind of recently, we were visiting some family and uh, we were running a little bit late to afternoon tea and got there and uh, was, I don't want to sound ungrateful here, like we were thankful for the hospitality, but uh, we were running a bit late and when we got there, kind of two hours after afternoon tea had been served, um, we were offered crackers with jam on it and cheese on top of that. Now, maybe that sounds good to you, but for me it doesn't. And then it was sitting in the sun as well, you know, kind of that started to melt, that little bit of cheese. So for me in that moment, thanks, but actually I've already eaten, right? Grateful for your hospitality, but you know, we just had food, but we were, we were all good. Now that's what it feels like from Jesus, right? Like he looks at their food and goes, thanks, but I've already eaten which confuses the disciples, right? They're like, who got you food, right? Did someone else get you food? I mean, why couldn't, why couldn't you just have told us they'd go and we didn't have to go to save the trip? 
didn't really want to go into Samaria, but it confuses the disciples, but Jesus speaks pretty quickly into that space, and he says, no, I'm not actually talking about food, I'm talking about something else. And what is he talking about? Well, he says this, he says, my food, in verse 34, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now that's weird, right? Like that, that just sounds strange that Jesus says, my food is actually to do God's will and to finish his work in the world. Right? That sounds strange to us because we know that's not food. Right? You serve that up for lunch today and I don't think it's going down that well. Right? For anyone involved there, we get that what Jesus is speaking about here isn't food. So what's he doing? What's Jesus doing here where he says, my food is to do God's will and finish his work? Well, he's, he's using this as a metaphor. And what he wants to get at here is really this desire of hunger. Right? And the big thing Jesus is doing here is getting at this idea of desires. Right? So we all know what it's like to be hungry. Right? We've all been there. Maybe you're feeling it here now, and me talking about it is not really that helpful. But we know what it's like to be hungry. Right? Where we are so longing to eat something. You know, for some of us, uh, we get the shakes. For some of us, we can't think. For some of us, we get angry. You know where hunger sort of takes over the emotions in the rest of our body, and we don't understand why? We know what it's like to be hungry, but we are longing for food. And then we know what it is to be satisfied with food. Right? Where you don't overeat, where you eat well and not just pure junk. We know what that's like, right? The desire for food, we're longing for it, and then when we eat well, we are satisfied because of it. This is the space in which Jesus is getting at here. Right? This idea of desire. He's getting at this, and he's saying, my food, right, my food, my desire, my motivation isn't fish and a couple of loaves of bread. Right? My food, he says, is to do God's will and the work of God in this world. That's Jesus' food. That's his desire. Okay, so what is the will of God? What's the work of God in this world? Well, he moves from one metaphor, one illustration, and goes to another. And this next one's on the harvest. Right? And you can kind of imagine him sitting on the hill there pointing his disciples to harvest fields. And he says to them, man, you guys know how this works. You get how harvest works. So he points to the harvest fields, right? And he says in verse 35, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Now see, Jesus clearly here isn't speaking about food, he's talking about something bigger, because it's a harvest for eternal life. So what's he speaking about? Well, it's that people would receive eternal life. Right, so Jesus' desire is that people would receive eternal life, and how do they do that? Well, if we remember a few weeks ago, John 3.16, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Okay, so let's pull this all together. Jesus' food, his desire, Right? His hunger, his motivation, his fuel is that people would believe and have eternal life. That's the thing that moves him. That's the thing that drives him. That's the thing that motivates him. It's that people would believe in the Son, would know Jesus, would trust Jesus, and receive eternal life. Now, let's not drift over how big a deal this is. That this is the heart that Jesus has. Right? That this is what Jesus wants. See, it's interesting, when uh, I was working through or looking at uh, this Reddit question, one question to ask God, 
a lot of the questions that were posed were in the ballpark of this question of kind of like, where are you? Right? That was the heaps of people were asking this kind of question. So some people would ask the question, literally, where are you? Uh, some people would ask the question, why aren't you here? Some people would ask the question, you know, why aren't you here? Right? And, and, and often, like, there was actually a bunch of people asking this kind of question, where are you? Right now, behind this question is this idea that God is a far-off God. Right? That he's kind of the God who sits in the clouds and does nothing, because if he did something, like maybe he's powerful, maybe he's strong, but he's distant, he's far off, he's, he's not near, because if he was near, he would have done something about the mess, right? That's kind of the idea behind it. And you know an idea breaches into culture when it makes its way to Netflix. So on Netflix, there's a show called Miracle Workers, and the God on Miracle Workers is exactly this, right? He's this old guy who sits doesn't care about the world, in fact, spends most of his time drunk. Right? That's the picture of God in this show. Right? Because people have this idea that God is a far-off God. He might be powerful, but he's not interested in doing anything about the mess, because if he was, he would actually do something about it. But see, it's interesting because this idea of God, that God is far off, is completely the opposite of what we've seen in the book of John. Right? Like, John's gone to lengths to show us that Jesus, that God, entered into the mess. Right? Remember how he started? That John describes Jesus as the Word, and he said the Word was with God, and he was God. Right? And, and this Word, Jesus, he created the world, but when he saw that the world was in darkness, he could sit back and have a drink. Right? That's not what God did. He entered into the mess. He entered into the darkness. John called him the light. The light that came into the darkness, right? And then we saw, why did he come into the darkness? To give people hope beyond the darkness, right? The hope of eternal life. And so what we see here from Jesus, him saying, this is my desire. This is my food. This is the thing that fuels me and motivates me and drives me. It shows both of these ideas, that God is the big, powerful, awesome God. The God who is to be feared. But he's also the God who came near, the God who entered into the mess, the God who cares about the mess, the God who cares about people who live in the mess. And Jesus says, this is my food, this is my desire, that people would actually see that there is more, that people would see Jesus and believe in Jesus and trust Jesus. This is the thing that moves him, that drives him, that fuels him. This is the answer to the question, right? What does God desire for you? He desires that you would know Jesus. He desires that you would know that there is a hope beyond this world. He desires that you would know his love. Now, what's interesting about that is I think when we think about what God desires for us, we want the answer to be different, right? Like, we kind of want the answer to be a little bit different. And when we think about this, if we think, okay, this is what God desires for us, I think sometimes we can be caught thinking, okay, so God wants less for me than I want for me. Right? So, like, and I think part of this is because of the culture we live in, where our world says, for you to be happy, you need stuff. You need a relationship. You need, a, you need some good friends. You need money. You need nice, a nice job. You need comfort. You need security. 
right? Our world says this is what you need to be happy. And, and if you don't have this, you can't be happy. So what we do uh, when we live in this world, we start to desire this stuff, right? And then we start to pray for it. We start to pray for the desires that our world puts up to us. And then we start longing for it, and then we start wishing that the answer to the question, what does God desire for me, would be this stuff, right? That I, I wish God desired for me a good relationship. I wish God desired for me a good paying job. I wish he desired for me security and comfort and happiness in, in a nice house and more stuff. Right now, now, maybe you can argue some of those things aren't bad things, right? Like God invented relationships. But see, what we see biblically when we ask this question, what does God want for me? What we see is that God doesn't want less for you than what the world offers. He wants infinitely more for you. God doesn't want to give you less than what the world says you need to be happy. He wants to give you infinitely more than that. He wants to give you himself. He wants to give you a love that is better than what the world's love is. A love that isn't going to fade after a couple of years. A love that isn't going to change. A love that isn't going to shift depending on you know, how you look. A love that is unconditional, that is there for you. A love that knowing you, still he went to the cross for you. He wants you to know that love and he wants you to find your security and identity in his love. Not in the love that this world offers. He wants you to know he's in control. He wants you to know that even when the world falls apart, because the world will fall apart, that he's still in control. And that we can rest in his control. We can live under the grace of his sovereign hand. He wants us to know unfading glory. Right? Because all the world promises us will fade and disappear and, and break. He wants us to know unfading glory found in Jesus. He wants us to know the unfading hope of eternal life. God wants us to know the kind and compassionate Jesus, our Savior. This is what God wants for you. He doesn't want less than what the world offers. He wants infinitely more for you than what the world offers. Right? And Jesus says here, this is, the, this is my food, right? This is my fuel. This is the thing that moves me and motivates me and drives me. It's the people who come and see Jesus. Come and see that there is more found in Jesus. Right? So if this is what God wants for us, if this is what his desire is, then the question for us is, how does this play out in a world that kind of is hostile to Jesus? How does this play out in, in our world or in this world? And this is what we see as we keep reading, is that John wants to give us two examples of two journeys of people, unlikely people, coming to trust in Jesus. And so we read the first one with this group of Samaritans. Verse 39, we see it. It says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Jesus' food is that he wants people to believe. That's his desire. That's the thing that moves him and fuels him. And so he goes, right? He says no to the food offered from the disciples, and he goes to the harvest, 
right? He goes to the people in Samaria, right? And what we see here is a bunch of them believe, right? And they believe because of this woman's testimony. Now, again, let's not drift over how big a deal it is that this woman gave this testimony, right? So often when we talk about the idea of sharing our faith or telling people about Jesus, we use this word mission, right? We say we are on mission. And often we think that people who are on mission need to be eloquent speakers and have all the answers to all the questions, right? And if we, if we aren't, then we can't be on mission. Right, but see this here in John, the first person on mission, aside from John the Baptist, is a Samaritan woman. Right? Remember how they were viewed in that culture? Samaritans weren't held up at all, they were despised, and then women weren't held up at all. And yet here, John is holding this woman up for us to show us what it looks like to be on mission. Right? She's not eloquent, she has a past, she wasn't really liked. And yet she's held up for us to show us what it looks like to go on mission. See, when God calls us to be on mission, he's not calling us to be someone we're not. He's just calling us to point to someone that we know. Right? He's not calling us to change our story or change our history or you know, figure out how we can you know, go through teaching lessons or whatever. He's just calling us to point to someone we know, to point to Jesus. This woman is held up for doing it. And so the Samaritans come, they ask Jesus to stay with him and, and to stay with them, and Jesus does for two days because his desire is that they would be saved. And then as we keep reading, they get to the end, and then in verse 42 we see they say, We no longer believe because of what you said, now we hope for ourselves. So again, right, we, we can feel the weight of this here. When God calls us on mission, he's not calling us to physically save people. Right? He's not calling us to somehow go into the people that we're going on mission to and, and do some heart surgery and change their hearts. That's Jesus' job. Right? We can't do that. But he is calling us to point people to Jesus and to trust Jesus to do his job. Right? The, the call is to be who we are and point to Jesus. That's what this woman does and the Samaritans believe. Right? So we get this first journey here. Unlike the believers, unlike the people coming and trusting in Jesus. Then we get the second journey. And this second journey is the official. So verse 43 to 45, he goes to Galilee. And then in verse 46, we meet this royal official. A certain royal official, official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Okay, so, so Jesus goes back to Galilee, and when he goes there, uh, he meets this royal official. Okay, so the royal official, he had some sort of prominence. We don't know exactly what level of prominence, we don't know exactly much about him, but some level of prominence. And then here in the story, we see he falls at Jesus' feet and begs him to come and heal his son. Right, so a man of prominence is begging Jesus. And really in this moment is doing anything a father would do, laying aside honour and shame, laying aside cultural norms, he comes to Jesus and begs him and says, please come and heal my son. So, so what does Jesus do? How does he respond to this? Verse 48, he says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Now it kind of feels like Jesus is ripping on them here in this moment. But we have to remember the context, right? What happened before and what's going to happen after. What is Jesus' food? 
What's his desire is that people would believe. Right? So it doesn't sound like it doesn't seem like he's actually ripping on them here, but actually just showing them the truth. Right? You guys need a sign to believe. And then what does he do? Well, he gives them a sign. Verse 49, the royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Right? The, the official comes begging Jesus to heal his son, and Jesus gives him this sign and says, right, your son will be well, your son will be healed, and then what happens a day's journey away, the son at the exact same time is healed. Right? So again, we, we don't feel that. The creator who spoke the world into existence doesn't need to be in the same room as a person he's healing. He simply speaks and creation listens to him. And when the official goes home, we see this in kind of verse 51 to 52. When he goes home, he recognizes this. He's amazed by this. But the question we need to ask is, why does Jesus do this? Why does he heal the son? Well, we see it in 53. When the father understands what happens, when he gets that at the exact same time, Jesus has said the son will live and the son got better, says this at the end of 53. So he and his whole household believed. See the purpose here of what Jesus is doing? It's so that people would believe. Because that's the thing that drives him. That's the thing that moves him. That's his food. That's the thing that gets him up in the morning. It's that people would believe. And so what we see is two unlikely journeys. Right? One's of the Samaritans, the other of this official in his household. Two people come into faith in different ways. One from the testimony of a, of a woman, the Samaritan woman, the other from a sign that they needed. And yet here what we get is both of these journeys of people, unlikely people, the harvest, coming to Jesus and believing. Believing. This is what we see, right? This is what we see. Jesus' food is this, and this is what happens. And so the question for us is, as we get to the end of this passage, and the end of this series, right, because we're at the end of our series called Why I Believe, we'll, we'll hit John again, Soon. But as we get to the end of this, the question for us is, what do we do with this? Right? What does it mean for us, all the stuff that we've just seen today? Well, I think as we ask that question, I think it means at least three things for us. The first thing is this. The first thing is that God's desire is for you to believe. Right? The God of the universe wants you to know Jesus. He wants you to find your security in his love, your comfort in his grace, your hope in his glory. He wants you to trust in Jesus. He is the God of the universe. He's the powerful and mighty and awesome God who spoke the world into, cre his, yeah, into creation. But he's also the God who came near, who entered into the mess to give us a hope beyond the mess. God's desire for you is to believe. And so if you're here this morning, see his invitation and come and put your trust in Jesus. Come believe in Jesus. Find your security in his love. Find your comfort in his grace. Find the hope of eternal life. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't done this before. Maybe this is the first time for you. Or maybe you want to recommit to this or, or re-jump in on this. We'd love to chat to you about this. We'd love to see for, or help you see what this journey looks like for you. Because the first thing this means for us is that God wants you to believe. The second thing flows from the first. And it's for those of us who do believe, who do put our trust in Jesus, who do find our comfort in his love. And what it means for us is if we do that, the second thing, it means that our desires align with his desires. Our desires align with his desires. 
So, uh, uh, specifically, when we're talking about missions, right? So, uh, I don't know where, if you think about mission in your life, where that would come into, you know, how you would kind of break that in terms of the rest of your desires, right? Like, how pressing is mission in for, for you, in your life, right? If you can rate mission out of 10, right? Because I feel like for some of us, we'd have a number in our head, how highly we rate it, and then practically on the ground, it might be a little bit different. But see, when we put our trust in Jesus, when we see He desires us to be saved, but also the world to be saved, our desires become aligned with His desires. So it's kind of like this, right? I think we could describe uh, how we think about mission in the same way Jesus does, or the same ballpark. I think we could describe the way we think about mission in a food sense as well. But it's different to Jesus. So for Jesus, when He describes it like food, it's like the, the, His favorite meal that He could eat for the rest of His life. Right, that's what it feels like when he was talking about that. It's like the meal he could just, this is it, this is the meal I have for the rest of my life. He could keep going back, he drives him, he loves it, you know, he wants that, it could be that. For us, though, when we talk about mission, I think for us we use food, maybe we could use food, but it's not the same type. It's more like a kid eating vegetables. Right, so um, I don't know if this happens in your house, uh, if you've got kids and they hate veggies, or um, if you can remember when you were a kid, uh, for me, it was growing up, um, for some reason, mum would often serve us Brussels sprouts. And man, I hate Brussels sprouts, right? I just, I hated it. And so we'd get those, again, don't sound ungrateful, <laughs> we'd get the, the plate up and, you know, Brussels sprouts on it. And I just, I don't like the smell, I don't like the taste, I don't like anything to do with it. But mum says it's good for you. Right? So, you know, you've got to eat it. And that was the rule of dinner. You have to eat it because it's good for you and, and mum's made it. And so, uh, around our table, dad would say grace. And as he said grace, I would pray a water to wine miracle type thing. Right? Then the Brussels sprout would transform into something bigger. He can do it, man. He can speak creation. He can do it. But I'd open my eyes up and it'd still be there. And then I'd have to eat the Brussels sprout. And as we do it, you know, you close your eyes, you hold your breath, and you just eat it as quickly as you can. Now, now I think this is actually kind of present for us as we talk about mission, because I think this is how we think about mission. Right? We know it's good for us. We know we should do it. We kind of hate it. Right? We, it's just like, and we do it as quickly as we can. Right? And since we're adults or teenagers, right, since we're in that space, if we're going to do it, right, for some of us, we just push it to the side of our faith. Right? But if we're going to do it, we just hold our breath and we do it as quickly as we can. Now, I know this is all of us. I think generally it covers, I mean, I've felt like this before. But see, that's not how Jesus speaks about food. It's not how he speaks about mission. Right? He uses different illustration. He longs for it. He desires it. He wants it. He lives for it. He breathes for it. He wakes up in the morning looking forward to it. He puts up a meal at the end of the day despite not eating because this is what he wants. He wants people to believe. And so if we put our trust in Jesus, maybe we actually have to come back to this, see his desire and our desires and, and kind of help those two things align. Right? That our desires actually align with his desires. He wants mission. He wants people to believe. This is what he wants for us. It's his food, Jesus says. So, so that's the second thing. And then finally, the third thing, and I think this is actually one of the things that can fuel our mission. And it's this. As we finish John and as we finish this series, the third thing it means for us, as we see Jesus' words here, is this. Our God desires mission more than we do. Our God desires that people would believe in Jesus more than we do. 
Right? Let's just let that soak in for a moment. He desires that our friends would believe more than we do. He desires our family would believe more than we do. He desires our colleagues would believe more than we do. God is fervently on mission. Right? That's why Jesus entered into the world. It's his food. He longs for it. See, when we think about mission, sometimes we think, I'm going to do mission and I'm going to pray that God gets on board with that. Man, God's on board with it. And he's inviting us to be a part of what he's doing in this world. God is on board. He desires mission more than we do. And he calls us to be who we are. He doesn't call us to be someone we're not. He calls us to be who we are and point to someone we know. Point to Jesus. And trust Jesus would do his work. This is the fuel for us, the fire for us, to go into our world and do mission. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Jesus, we are so grateful that you came into this world. We're so grateful that when you saw the darkness, you didn't sit back. But Jesus, you entered into the world to do something about this darkness. Thank you, you entered into the mess to give us a hope beyond the mess. God, we pray that our heart for mission would be aligned with your heart for mission. Lord, we pray that we would recognize you're on board with this. It's your idea. It's why we're here. And we pray that we would live to the call that you have called us to, that we would go on mission in our world, recognizing that this is what you're doing. You want people to believe. God, we are excited by this, optimistic by this, expectant by what you're going to do. And so we pray to this end in Jesus' name.